Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch. I direct Cato's project on uh, criminal justice and uh, I want to welcome everybody here. Um, this month marks the five-year anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision in District of Columbia versus Heller. So we thought it would be a good time to consider what has transpired, both the good and the bad, uh, over the past five years and get some perspective on where the law stands and what the trends are. Not too long ago, I purchased uh, one of these American history courses that are on tape. Uh, I kind of listened to it on my commute in from Virginia. And the instructor on this course was very good. And he, uh, one of the points he makes was that it's a common mistake for people to look back on historical events and consider them to be somehow inevitable. The instructor said, not only is that wrong, but it removes a lot of the drama from learning about history. He said that the truth is that historical change uh, at any given moment is driven by the choices of people, not some mysterious inevitability. And that's one reason why I'm so glad we could get the original Heller legal team back together for our event today. Because let's remember that that case did not spontaneously appear on the docket of the Supreme Court back in 2008. We have to go back more than 10 years uh, to the moment when Clark Neely and his colleague Steve Simpson at the Institute for Justice decided, talking uh, among themselves, that now was a really good time to bring a constitutional challenge against uh, DC's gun control laws, which is essentially banned the possession of any functional firearm in the home at that time. Clark then pitched their idea to Bob Levy, who then considered their arguments uh, about the timing of the case and all the surrounding circumstances. And then he made the decision uh, to finance the case. Clark and Bob then persuaded Alan Gura to become the lead counsel. Uh, and Alan uh, agreed to do it. And he developed a legal strategy to get the good scholarship that had been developed uh, in books and in law review articles to get that good scholarship uh, presented to the Supreme Court, uh, a strategy that uh, proved to be successful. Now, against that background, some of us were surprised to hear Mayor Michael Bloomberg make the statement that no one had done more than him to defend the Second Amendment <laughs> a couple of months ago. No one had done more than him. I think even his friends had to shake their heads in disbelief uh, at that one. Uh, you know, I don't know what's worse, whether he actually believes that or whether he doesn't believe it and just can look into a TV camera and, and say something like that. In any event, I submit to you that this legal team did such a good job that many public interest lawyers from all across the political spectrum now look at the work they did in bringing this landmark case uh, to the court and they consider it to be a model of uh, intelligent <laughs> lawyering. As far as our program today, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. I've asked uh, Clark Neely to lay the foundation by reminding everyone where the law stood before Heller was decided, and then what the Heller court said and why it is considered to be a landmark decision. Bob Levy is going to discuss some of the legislative proposals that have been introduced since the Sandy Hook tragedy, the ones that we've been hearing about on the news the past few months, and the impact that the Heller precedent may have on uh, any legal challenges uh, that come to those proposals. Alan Gura is going to discuss some of the cases he has handled over the past five years and how the lower federal courts have dealt with other controversies involving uh, the right to carry arms outside of the home. 
And I've invited Emily Miller to help us to better understand the local angle right here in DC about um, what's involved with acquiring a gun uh, and registering it with the city. After Emily's talk, uh, we'll then open it up and take your questions for about uh, 15 minutes. Before I introduce our first guest speaker, let me take a moment to ask those of you who came with cell phones, if you just take a moment now, just a quick double check and make sure it's turned off uh, as a courtesy to our speakers. Thank you. Clark Neely has been a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice since 2000. He's litigated cases about school choice, property rights, and the First Amendment in both the state and federal courts. Clark also helped to create the Institute for Justice's Center for Judicial Engagement, which articulates a principled vision on the role of the courts and judicial review. Uh, a reporter once described Clark as aggressively articulate. And uh, to give you an example of, of what they mean by that, uh, we asked Clark after the Heller decision came down to prepare an article for the Cato Supreme Court Review. Now, our review is kind of his staid academic journal. And uh, the title that Clark chose for the article is kind of interesting. He called it, the Second Amendment is back, baby. <laughs> Please welcome Clark Neely. <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure to be here, um, and I want to start by thanking Tim, Roger, and the other folks at, at Cato for having this event, for giving us an opportunity to talk about, I think, this very interesting and timely subject. Um, I also want to thank uh, my co-counsel, Alan and Bob. Um, it was, it's been a wild ride, and uh, actually, one of our plaintiffs, George Lyon, is here in the front row, so thanks to George also. If there's anybody, other plaintiffs I haven't seen, let me know, all right? Um, I also want to thank uh, both the people in the audience here with us today, but also people who are not here with us today, whose um, scholarship and their tenacious commitment to um, the principles underlying the Second Amendment really helped to create the uh, necessary legal framework um, and the legal environment that's necessary for us to be able to, to litigate and win the Heller case. Um, it's important, and I want to really kind of emphasize this in my part of the talk, um, really to understand how incredibly uh, key that scholarship was both in transforming um, the legal environment surrounding the Second Amendment and making possible um, a victory in the Supreme Court. Um, on March 16, 1975, three women, Carolyn Warren, um, Joan Telefaro, and Miriam Douglas were attacked in their home in northwest Washington, D.C., the details of the attack are horrendous. I will spare you the details. Um, they were raped and attacked over a period of many hours. Um, at the beginning of the attack, only one, one, one of the women had been attacked. The two others were upstairs in the, in the house where they lived. And they managed to call the police. They called the DC police and reported a, a break-in in progress. The uh, call was, was misdispatched. It should have gone out as a code one, indicating um, the highest level of, you know, of urgency. It went out as a code two. The police responded. The women upstairs saw the police cars drive by the building. One of the officers, in violation of uh, department protocol, went to the door and simply knocked and then walked away when it wasn't answered. No one went to the back door. If they had, they would have seen that it had been kicked in. Presumably, they might have done something different. The police officers left. Hmm. They were called back by the two women who could still hear the sounds of the attack going on below. The dispatcher was advised that nothing had been done. The police had not responded properly. This time, the call wasn't even dispatched. 
It was just written down as a sort of investigated leisure. The women then sued the District of Columbia for negligence because of their obviously negligent police response. And in court, at right around the same time, the District of Columbia enacted and began enforcing its gun ban. The District of Columbia's lawyers took the position that the district had no legal duty to provide police protection to these women or anybody else. So think about that for a moment. At the exact same time that the District of Columbia is depriving these people, including women who are vulnerable to attack, of any ability to defend themselves from these kind of predators, they are also taking the position in the court that they have no legal duty to provide any defense themselves. I think that tells you a lot about government. I think that tells you a lot about the District of Columbia, unfortunately. If you knew a person, if you knew an individual who took that position, you would consider that person to be dishonorable and despicable that they would deprive people of the ability to meaningfully defend themselves at the same time they disclaimed any duty to provide that protection themselves. That was um, the state of affairs. That was the, the story on the ground here in DC at the time we decided to bring the Heller case. What I want to focus on in the, my remaining uh, time is three points. Um, first, why was it possible to bring the Heller case at the time we did? Why did Alan and Bob and I decide that it was the right time to bring the Heller case and why DC? I'll start with the last question because it's the easiest in some ways. The simple answer is because the District of Columbia's gun law represented the most substantial and widespread disarmament of Americans on American soil since the time of the founding, since the British disarmed the colonists at Boston. It was, bar none, the most draconian gun law in the entire country. It completely forbade private citizens from owning handguns, and it permitted, theoretically, the ownership of a long gun, shotgun or a rifle, but it had to be unloaded and either disassembled at trigger, uh, and, or trigger locked at all times, and there was no exception for self-defense. So in effect, what DC allowed you to do is to have a club that looked like a gun. <laughs> so that made, and, and the other uh, part of the equation for DC was that the District of Columbia Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, was one of the few circuit courts that had not yet weighed in on the question of whether the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun. By that point, nine of the 11 uh, geographic federal circuits had uh, weighed in and said no. So the District of Columbia Circuit, I'm sorry, 12 federal circuits, uh, District of Columbia was one of the few where it was still an open question. What made the, the uh, Heller case possible at this time is something I've alluded to already, and that is the, the, uh, essentially the rise of pro-Second Amendment legal scholarship, of legal scholarship that found that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own guns. Up until about 1983, when Don Cates uh, published a seminal article in the Michigan Law Review, the prevailing interpretation of the Second Amendment was that it protects a collective right to own guns. Uh, I was a Russian major, so I have some familiarity with collective rights. For those of you who don't, um, they are meaningless. It is a euphemism <laughs> for the absence of any right. Um, but this was the prevailing view, both in the courts um, and in legal academia. Uh, but as I said, that changed, and it changed rapidly um, as the sort of the floodgates for legal scholarship opened up, and people began taking a serious look at the meaning of the Second Amendment. Um, the nine circuit court opinions that I mentioned a moment ago, if you go and look at them, they are remarkable primarily for their utter lack of any significant or meaningful legal analysis. All they do is cite a single four and a half page Supreme Court opinion from 1939, United States v. Miller, that I describe in the article Tim mentioned as a legal Rorschach test. It really tells us nothing about the meaning of the Second Amendment. 
Um, and there's no holding even in the case because they remanded it um, to the trial court to make some further evidentiary findings, and then the case was mooted somewhat ironically by the death, uh, the shooting death of one of the defendants in the case, um, and the other defendant uh, took a plea bargain. Anyway, the um, uh, further point to make about the academic scholarship, and I really think this is where our opponents um, maybe suffered the most, is when a number of leading liberal academics took the position that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. Uh, Sanford Levinson, in a famous 1989 Law Review article in the Yale Law Journal called The Embarrassing Second Amendment, describes how he started out to write an article about how the Second Amendment doesn't really mean anything. He was going to try to affirm the collective rights scholarship, and then discovered to his chagrin that when you take an honest look at the question, or at least that's what his position was when he took a candid look at it, he said there's only one conclusion you can reach, and the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own guns. Uh, this was followed by Lawrence Tribe, a very prominent liberal professor at Harvard, who actually rewrote uh, the portion of his uh, constitutional textbook in 2000 to change his view and say that, in fact, the Second Amendment does protect an individual right in his view. Uh, and they were not alone. So it became impossible, really, at that point to say that the only people who accept the individual rights interpretation of the Second Amendment are shills for the NRA and gun-owning gun nuts. Um, you had these very prominent liberal academics who said, no, uh, the fact of the matter is it does protect an individual right. The, um, the catalyzing event, um, what actually made it the right time, in our view, to bring the Heller case was a 2001 decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which not coincidentally, I think, covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, uh, being the first federal court of appeals to find that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun in a case called the United States v. Emerson. Um, what happened, there were two things that happened as a result of the Emerson case. First, it created a circuit split. Uh, this is a term of art that constitutional lawyers use to describe when federal courts of appeals have disagreed with each other on an important issue of constitutional law, and that generally puts an issue uh, on a short track to the U.S. Supreme Court. The other thing that happened in the wake of Emerson was that criminal defense attorneys all over the country began filing Second Amendment defenses to gun charges in cases where they would not otherwise have, do, uh, have done so. So we got a sudden raft of Second Amendment litigation. And this, um, basically, when we saw that, uh, my uh, uh, colleague Steve Simpson and I um, at the Institute for Justice looked at that and said, look, this, this issue is going to the Supreme Court. And it's going there pretty soon. The only question is, should it go up in the guise of a criminal case? Basically, where somebody's saying, well, I, I had a right to the gun that I used to carjack that guy. I probably shouldn't have carjacked him, but I definitely had a right to the gun uh, that I used to do it. Um, that wouldn't, those are bad facts. So we decided that, that a much uh, better approach would be to try to put together um, a, a classic civil rights case um, to vindicate the Second Amendment. And as Tim mentioned, Bob and I spent, and Gene Healy actually here at, at Cato, spent the summer of 2002 looking for uh, plaintiffs to be a part of this challenge. And as those of you who are familiar with public interest litigation know, and and this goes back, really, back to the day of um, the, the, the civil rights litigation in the 50s. Um, you try to work incrementally, and you try to put a human face on your case. And we were very successful in doing that, um, in large measure because of the, the excellent plaintiffs that we were able to recruit. Um, I'll tell you a quick story about one of them who's familiar to some of you, Tom Palmer. Um, Tom was a, a senior vice president here at the Cato Institute when we brought the case. Tom is also openly gay. And he was almost murdered by a skinhead mob in California. Uh, they chased after him and a companion and threatened them, and, and it's chilling. If you read Tom's affidavit, which we filed in the case, he relates how they were yelling at him, faggot, we'll kill you, and we'll bury the body where no one will ever find it. 
Um, Tom was able to uh, pull out a gun that he had in his backpack. He pointed it at the leader of this skinhead mob. And uh, this is not the moment where you would think there'd be humor in the story, but there is. Um, the leader of the skinhead mob immediately stepped back and said, hey, man, have you got a license for that thing? <laughs> um, Tom did not because it was California, and the only people who get licenses to carry in California are celebrities. True story, by the way. Sylvester Stallone has one. You can find his application online. Um, but Tom didn't have a license. Um, but he, he told me, he's dead serious. You know, if you take another step towards me, I'll shoot and I'll kill you. And they, it saved his life. He believes it saved his life. Um, interesting epilogue to the story. Tom had that gun, even though it was illegal, because his mother gave it to him. His mother gave him the gun because she said, Tom, if you're going to be openly gay, you will probably need this one day. She was right. So the fact of the matter is there are people in the world whose last resort is a gun. It's the only way they're going to protect themselves and save their lives against the kind of violence that the women faced, who I described at the beginning of the talk, or that Tom Farmer faced that night um, in Long Beach, California. So Tom and... Uh, uh, the remaining plaintiffs and Bob and Alan and I set out to vindicate this right. Um, I'll skip, o skip over the procedural uh, history of the Heller case, even though it's very interesting, and um, complete my, my remarks by describing very briefly the uh, three opinions that the Heller decision produced. Uh, the first was Justice Scalia's majority for five justices in which he um, took a very careful, painstaking look at the relevant history and text, answered essentially all of the arguments that have been deployed against an individual rights interpretation of the Second Amendment, including the idea that it only protects uh, the authority of states to field and arm militia, uh, I think uh, systematically demolished them. Um, injected a very unfortunate bit of dicta, which we'll probably hear about later, in which he said that, that despite the fact that a total gun ban is unconstitutional, of course no one's questioning the ability of the government to um, ban guns in sensitive places and to ban guns that are dangerous and unusual and so forth and so on. Um, but on the whole, a solid opinion could have been better, but every Supreme Court decision could have been better. But the, the, what counts is what the holding was, which is that the government cannot ban completely um, a commonly used weapon like a handgun for self-defense. Um, I have to actually quote from the Stevens dissent because every time I read this sentence, it just boggles my mind. Justice Stevens essentially adopted without acknowledging that he was doing so. Uh, he essentially adopted the collective rights model. And he says, this is his, uh, from the second paragraph of his dissent. The question presented by this case is not whether the Second Amendment protects a collective right or an individual right. Surely it protects a right that can be enforced by individuals. The Second Amendment plainly does not protect the right to use a gun to rob a bank. It is equally clear that it does encompass the right to use weapons for certain military purposes. What? So according to Justice Stevens, the point of the Second Amendment is to enable people who are engaged in military operations to assert an individual right in court to be armed while they do so. One has the image of Marines storming a beach, you know, with broomsticks. But, but one of them thinks, you know what? We could go to court and get an injunction and, you, and, and have guns for this operation. And that's really the point of the Second Amendment. It is ludicrous. It is a ludicrous interpretation of the Second Amendment. Um, and perhaps for that reason, there was a second dissent in the case uh, written by Justice Breyer. All four dissenting justices, by the way, signed on to both dissents. The dissent that said the Second Amendment effectively means nothing or that's rather comical, right, uh, to have a gun while engaged in military operations. Justice, uh, Justice Breyer did what you might expect from Justice Breyer, which was to create an elaborate balancing test that always yields the same answer, which is that the government can do whatever it wants in this area. Um, I skimmed it again. It's not really worth relating to you. you those of you familiar with Justice Breyer already know it anyway. Um, but essentially what he did is he sort of looks at the government's interest on one side, which is, of course, saving lives. 
Um, and he looks at the interests on the other side, which is, of course, uh, the ability of people who don't work in the most heavily armed facility in, in Washington, D.C., like Justice Breyer does, um, to protect themselves when they're at work or at home. And Justice Stevens, uh, I'm sorry, Justice Breyer essentially finds this to not be a terribly important right. Um, I sort of wonder if he might change his mind about that, by the way, if they took away armed security from the Supreme Court, might focus his attention. Um, mm -hmm. Some of you may know Justice Breyer was robbed at Machete Point on the island of Nevis in the Caribbean a couple of years ago, um, and his home was broken into in Georgetown. So um, perhaps if those things had happened before the Heller case, he might have had a different perspective. Um, I'll just end by saying that um, the uh, Supreme Court's analysis of the issue in Heller um, really, I think, transcends the issue of guns. It goes to the very heart of one of the most important questions in all of constitutional law, and that is, what are the prerogatives of the individual in society. When you, when you leave the state of nature and you go into a society with government, do you leave behind the effective ability to protect yourself from violence when the state cannot? That to me is what this question comes down to. And people who support the Heller dissent say that you do effectively give up any meaningful ability to protect yourself from violence when the state either cannot or will not or disclaims any legal duty to do so. Those of us who support the Second Amendment, those of us who support the individual rights interpretation of the Second Amendment reject that view. You do not give up your right to defend yourself from violence just because you live in civil society, or as the case might be, an uncivil society. Thank you. Thank you, Clark. Our second speaker today is Bob Levy, who is chairman of Cato's Board of Directors, a position he has held now for several years. Bob actually joined Cato in 1997 as a senior fellow, and although he is most widely known for his role in the Heller litigation, if you look over his writings over the years, you'll find that he has written on many, many aspects of the Constitution, uh, federalism, free speech, equal protection, uh, and more. Uh, one of the interesting things that came up during the Heller litigation as report, you know, after, after the Supreme Court decided to take the case and reporters decided to focus their attention on the people uh, behind the lawsuit, uh, one of the interesting things that came up was that when reporters found out that Bob did not uh, own a gun, uh, this astonished them. Uh, they, were, they were like, what's up with this? Why is this guy getting so involved in this case? They were, they were really ready to write this narrative about a guy who was very determined to keep uh, his right uh, to own a gun, but they were astonished that he didn't have one. And uh, so many of them couldn't get their heads around the fact about why he would get so involved in, in litigation like this. And he would have to patiently explain that the case was not just about uh, the right to keep bare arms. It was about the government respecting the Constitution. Uh, he cares about freedom of the press, even though he doesn't own a newspaper. Uh, uh, he cares about fair trials and due process, even though he himself hasn't been accused uh, of a crime. Uh, some of the reporters got it. Uh, some of them still, still don't get it. But uh, his writings have appeared in all the major newspapers, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and, and the Washington Post. He co-authored a book with uh, Chip Miller of the Institute for Justice. Uh, the book is called The Dirty Dozen, How 12 Cases Radically Expanded Government and Eroded Freedom. There is a new book out, just came out a few weeks ago, um, on the Supreme Court by Marsha Coyle, who is uh, the Supreme Court reporter for the National uh, Law Journal. And she has a chapter about the Heller case. And in describing uh, Bob Levy, she says that 
uh, Bob Levy has this mischievous twinkle in his eye uh, when you talk to him. And, uh, there it is. <laughs> Please welcome Bob Levy. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to cover some of the gun control proposals post uh, Newham, uh, Newtown, but before I uh, turn to specific proposals, let me review uh, what it is that we now know. Uh, first, the Second Amendment secures an individual right to bear arms for self-defense. That was a holding of the Heller case. Second, that protection applies everywhere in the United States. As some of you may know, uh, until the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, the, the uh, Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government. You read the First Amendment, it says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say anything about the, the states um, making laws that would have violated things like free speech and, and freedom of the press. Of course, we know over the first 70 or so years of our existence that the states can be just as tyrannical as the feds, uh, slavery being the obvious case in point. And so we fought a civil war, and post-civil war, we had a number of amendments, including the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was used to incorporate, that's the term of art, that is to make apply the Bill of Rights to the states, so that if the states were to violate your Bill of Rights, your rights under the Bill of Rights, then the federal government could come in and stop that. This process didn't uh, all happen in one fell swoop. It happened very gradually. So there'd be some litigation about the applicability of right of free speech to the states, and then religious freedom, and then freedom of the press. And interestingly, until 2010, until Alan Gurr litigated the McDonald case, in Chicago, the Supreme Court had never addressed whether or not the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights, applied to the state. So the first thing we know is that it protects a right to self-defense, uh, to bear arms for self-defense. The second thing, as a result of the McDonald case, the right applies everywhere, not just to federal jurisdictions like uh, District of Columbia, Guam, Samoa, and uh, Puerto Rico. It applies even in uh, Illinois. The third thing we know is that the right isn't absolute, and that is it's subject to, like other provisions of the Bill of Rights, it's subject to some reasonable uh, restrictions. But fourth, the Supreme Court declared in both Heller and McDonnell that the right to bear arms is considered to be a fundamental right. And what's that mean? It means that we enjoy a presumption of individual liberty. Government bears a very heavy burden to justify any regulations that would compromise our right to bear arms. And that burden of proof point was central uh, to a ruling in December of 2012 by the U.S. Court of Appeals in a case called Moore versus Madigan, which overturned the Illinois ban uh, to carry uh, firearms. And Judge Posner, who had been highly critical of the Heller decision, so no fan of, of, uh, of Scalia's opinion in Heller, Judge Posner wrote, and this is a quote, Illinois had to provide us with more than merely a rational basis for believing that its uniquely sweeping ban is justified by an increase in public safety. The state failed to meet this burden. So there's the key point. As a result of Heller and McDonald, the burden has shifted to the government. It's no longer necessary for us to prove we need to bear arms. It's up to the government to prove that there is a compelling need for the government to regulate our ability to bear arms. And indeed, the regulations that they propose are going to be uh, effective. So with that as the very brief background, let's look at some of the current gun control proposals that are pending uh, before Congress and some of the state uh, legislatures, for starters, barring high-capacity magazines. Now, I can imagine a Korean shop owner in Watts who uh, needs multiple rounds to protect his store and his family, uh, but I can also imagine multiple victim killings like we had uh, um, 
in Newtown where innocent lives might have been saved if we had an effective uh, ban on, on high-capacity magazine. The key word, of course, is effective. An ineffective ban is worse than, than useless because it, it protects, deters only uh, law-abiding citizens. So what should the trade-off be? And that's where this point about burden of proof comes in. It is up to the government to compile data indicating whether the benefits of, of banning high-capacity magazines exceed the cost. If they do, if the government can show that, I have little doubt that such a ban would survive a Second Amendment uh, court challenge. But there are three, uh, at least three, related problems. First, these homemade magazines are very easy to assemble. They're nothing but a box with a, with a spring in them. Second, there's no way to confiscate millions of high-capacity magazines uh, that are now in circulation. And third, existing semi-automatic handguns come configured typically for anywhere between 11 and 19 rounds. So a ban on any size less than 20 would make those weapons dysfunctional and encounter great resistance. That said, uh, I'm not aware of any situation where an actual or a potential civilian victim uh, has fired more than 20 rounds in self-defense. Uh, I am aware that magazines greater than 20 rounds have been used several times in, some, in these random mass killings. And evidence like that might be sufficient for government to justify a 20-round limit, in my view. Uh, but the proposal in Congress, which now calls for a 10-round limit, and the New York law, uh, which says 10-round limit, but you can only have seven of those rounds actually loaded in the magazine, uh, those laws should both be uh, rejected. What about an assault weapons ban? Now, once again, this is a matter of empirical evidence. We had an assault weapons ban from 1994 to 2004, and after it expired, several months thereafter, the New York Times, no fan of, of gun rights, reported, again, a quote, despite dire predictions that the streets would be awash in military-style guns, expiration of the assault weapons ban has not set off a sustained surge in sales or caused any noticeable increase. Uh, in gun crime. So we have millions of these so-called assault weapons now used by Americans for hunting and self-defense, uh, for target shooting, even for Olympic uh, competition. Criminals do not use these uh, assault rifles. They use handguns. Assault weapons are expensive. Assault weapons are very difficult uh, to conceal. Even if we were to reinstitute the assault weapons ban that expired in 2004, we would have to deal with, and we would not be able to deal with, the huge number of these guns that are already owned in circulation. Uh, some people think that a buyback program would work, uh, but it would be, as you can imagine, costly. And furthermore, who would the sellers be? Who would surrender their guns and accept the money? They would be individuals who obviously valued the money more than they valued the firearm. And that would be mostly low-income persons who needed the money, who live in high-crime areas, who obey the law, but who need a means uh, to defend themselves. And who is it that would keep the weapons if there were a buyback program? These would be individuals who valued the weapons more than they valued the money. And that would include criminals and terrorists uh, for whom these guns are a tool of their trade. And of course, mentally deranged people who are, aren't motivated by uh, financial incentives. Uh, in the Heller case, Justice Scalia uh, suggested the Second Amendment would pose no barrier uh, to outlawing weapons that are not in common use and especially dangerous. So it's quite clear that some weapons can be banned. Indeed, automatic weapons have a set, these are weapons where you pull the trigger and it keeps firing. You don't have to pull the trigger again. These have essentially been banned like machine guns since 1934, and they remain banned. So the task in structuring an assault weapons ban is to cover only those firearms that are not commonly used, that are not needed 
uh, for self-defense and that would improve public safety if indeed the weapons were banned. The 1994 assault weapons ban quite clearly went too far, but a better crafted, limited version might be justified if there are any guns that meet the criteria that I've outlined. But you need to put this in perspective. And here are some FBI statistics for two years ago, to the year 2011, the latest statistics available. There were almost 13,000 people murdered with a weapon in 2011. Of those, 1,700 were killed with knives, 500 with hammers, bats, and clubs, 728 by someone's bare hands. How many were killed with rifles? Not just the assault rifles, but rifles of all types, 323. Now, I don't mean to trivialize 323 deaths, but banning popular semi-automatic rifles merely because they come equipped with a pistol grip or some other attachment that has no effect on their firepower or their lethality makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, what about the clamor to extend background checks to private sales at gun shows and private sales over the internet, uh, internet and through published ads? Survey data indicates that less than 2% of guns used by criminals uh, are bought at gun shows and flea markets, and that includes sales through licensed dealers at gun shows, which are already subject to uh, background checks. And still, the New York Times editorializes that background checks, quote, prevented nearly 2 million gun sales over a 15-year period. Of course, this is an absolutely ridiculous claim. There is no way for the Times to know how many sales uh, were prevented for, uh, from occurring. Violence-prone buyers who don't pass a background check go elsewhere uh, for their purchases or they steal a gun. Uh, peaceful buyers who don't pass their background check might, however, be denied the right to defend themselves uh, with an appropriate firearm. And here again are some interesting figures for the year 2010. The National Instant Criminal Background Check System, so-called NICS, N-I-C-S, denied 76,000 would-be buyers in 2010. How many were prosecuted? 44. Not 44,000, 44 out of 76,000. How many convicted? 13 out of 76,000. That's a conviction rate of two one-hundredths of 1%. 1 so either the remaining denials were legitimate purchases that were unjustly blocked by the NICS system, or if the denials were proper, uh, then somehow 99.98% of these uh, 76,000 rejected applicants somehow escaped punishment. Now, most likely, both factors uh, were at work. But neither of those possibilities offers very much hope for an expanded system of checks. Uh, we would do much better to improve the existing system. Uh, two further points regarding background checks. First, these checks cost anywhere from $25 to $125, the highest in DC, of course. Uh, if they actually promoted public safety, then taxpayers should foot that bill, not law-abiding gun owners. Second, the claim that background checks takes just a few minutes is disingenuous. Some of these checks, a significant number of them, take up to 72 hours. And most gun shows, as you probably know, are two-day events. The real goal of the expanded checks, in some cases, uh, was to drive gun shows out of business. That's been partly successful. Some say that's a good idea, but they know that if they were tried to implement a law banning gun shows, that would be deemed unconstitutional. So they tried to do the same thing uh, through the back door. You have to remember that the I in NICS, and ICS, stands for instant. So if technology could facilitate truly speedy background checks, I would say 24 hours maximum, uh, and that was the proposal, by the way, in the Manchin-Toomey Compromise Bill, a 24-hour maximum, uh, I'd have no objection to extending 
these NICS checks to cover selected private sales. Not because uh, that would curve violence. I have no illusions about that. But rather because the compromise bill, the Manchin-Toomey compromise that was voted down, uh, that contained a few modest improvements and it would have conveyed important benefits for advocates of gun owners' rights. Now to what would be effective. The most effective option, which isn't being discussed by anyone, but would result in a huge reduction uh, in gun violence, is to legalize drugs. Uh, there are one and a half million drug arrests each year. There are more drug inmates than for all violent crimes combined. That's equal to about 50% of the federal prison population. Because drugs are illegal, participants in the drug trade cannot go to court to settle their disputes to resolve contract problems. So the disputes are resolved by force. They're resolved on the streets with guns. Criminals and terrorists are earning about $40 billion a year in the drug trade, and the DEA has 10,000 agents, analysts, and support staff who could be involved in fighting real crime uh, or terrorism. Another alternative suggested by the NRA is armed guards at school. Uh, Israel's done that. School violence is effectively zero. About 28% of the schools, about 28% of the schools are of our public schools already employ uh, security officers who carry guns. So this isn't a new idea. And for the remaining schools, uh, retired military and police personnel would be obvious recruits. The focus should be on entrance security, which means less manpower. We don't need an armed guard in every classroom. Now, it's true that an armed guard didn't prevent Columbine, but neither did the ban on assault weapons and the ban on high-capacity magazines that was in effect at the time of uh, Columbine. <clears throat> Gun-free school zones have been a magnet uh, for the mentally deranged. We have armed guards in banks, airports, power plants, courts, stadiums, government buildings, and, of course, on planes. There's no reason why we couldn't have armed guards at those schools who decided they needed them, not just 28% of the schools. Even the indisputably liberal Washington Post, no fan of guns, editorialized back in December, armed guards, quote, are not unreasonable where local schools feel they need them. So in the aftermath of this uh, heart-rending tragedy at Sandy Hook, by all means, we need to evaluate our gun laws. Um, but as you can tell, I am skeptical about the efficacy of gun regulations, mostly because they are imposed almost exclusively on persons who are not part of the problem. Uh, so here are my recommendations in a nutshell. Drug legalization would reduce gun violence quickly and materially. Armed guards might reduce random mass killings at schools. Beyond that, a revised Manchin-Toomey compromise, extending gun background checks to some private sales, I think would, in the package of Manchin-Toomey, uh, offer meaningful benefits to gun rights advocates, and I'd be happy to discuss that compromise during the Q&A. We need to remember that core Second Amendment rights are at risk, and so we need to be sure that the ends justify the means. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Um, our third speaker today is going to be Alan Gura, the, the lead counsel in the Heller case. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Alan was responsible for developing the litigation strategy that got the Heller case to the Supreme Court. Uh, he presented the case uh, before the justices at oral argument. And just two years later, he was back before the justices when he successfully argued that the Second Amendment binds not only the federal government, but state and local officials as well. That was the McDonald versus City of Chicago case. So he's 2-0 and 0 
at the Supreme Court, and that's one of the reasons why the National Law Journal named Allen among the 100 most influential lawyers uh, in America. Just last week, he filed another petition at the Supreme Court on whether consumers have legal standing to challenge the constitutionality of laws regulating the sale of firearms. So please welcome Alan Gura. Thanks, Tim. It's always an honor to be here and share the stage at Cato with Bob and Clark, who were uh, fantastic uh, friends and co-counsel in uh, Heller. It could not have been done without their contributions. Um, ideally, the Second Amendment should function like a normal provision of the Bill of Rights. That was the goal of, of Heller. And I believe that we uh, may well be on the path to achieving that end. Uh, that would mean that from time to time, cases would arise, uh, raising some novel application of the amendment to a new set of facts. And the courts would disappoint both sides with some regularity uh, as the right develops organically uh, into the future, indefinitely. We have yet to see, for example, uh, the one Fourth Amendment case that ends all search and seizure debate in America and resolves uh, uh, that part of the Constitution for all time. That's not going to happen with the Second Amendment, most likely. But the reality can, can be definitely less than ideal. At the present time, uh, the situation is decidedly mixed. Some courts take the Second Amendment very seriously, and they've applied it to secure meaningful positive change in people's lives that my clients and, and other people feel uh, every single day. Other courts, however, are profoundly hostile to the concept of the Second Amendment. They believe that Heller is not so much a legitimate opinion <clears throat> that must be followed as much as it is an obstacle, a puzzle to be solved, something to be bypassed or defeated. Uh, we do know from the outcome of the McDonald case that three of the President Justices on the Supreme Court, if given the chance, would vote to overrule Heller and shut down, I suppose, uh, this uh, type of debate and this event uh, uh, into the future. Uh, we don't yet know how Justice Kagan uh, feels about uh, Heller and McDonald, uh, but it is uh, fair to uh, wonder whether one or two different votes, uh, if the makeup of the court were to change in the near future, would alter the landscape very dramatically. Now, I didn't always feel this way when Heller was decided. Uh, I went on record and believed that even if the court were to become more hostile to the Second Amendment, uh, they wouldn't flat out overrule Heller. They would find creative ways to limit it or give it a narrow reading and otherwise make the right uh, ever less meaningful. But I think I've changed my mind on that. I think it's fairly obvious, not just from the McDonald dissents, but also looking at the attitude of some uh, of the lower courts, that elections here matter. They matter greatly. And a, a small makeup uh, in the Supreme Court uh, uh, could, uh, could definitely uh, influence this and, and put the, uh, the Second Amendment uh, uh, out of business. So uh, elections matter, and people should probably be concerned more as to uh, uh, where judges are coming from and how they feel about this and other constitutional rights. Now, I don't wish to overstate the case for despair, as our opponents sometimes do. Uh, it's always interesting to see that uh, anti-gun groups will say, oh, there have been six or 800 or 900 cases uh, making Second Amendment arguments in the wake of Heller, and they've all lost. And therefore, this is really quite a worthless uh, right. Well, let's remember that many of these cases are essentially frivolous cases. The prison inmate who files a habeas corpus petition alleging that he had the right uh, to uh, uh, use a gun in the commission of a bank robbery, uh, things of that nature. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not fair to say that just because somebody makes an argument under constitutional provision, that, our, that, that the loss of the argument necessarily means that the provision itself is not serious. The universe of uh, meaningful Second Amendment cases that really are 
going to make a difference one way or another is much, much smaller. Uh, before we get to those, of course, it's always important to note that even in some of these bad, uh, crazy cases, uh, we do get some interesting language. And there have been many cases where uh, courts have looked at um, a challenge, often a criminal challenge, and they would force the government to put up its proof. Uh, cases where the outcome perhaps is never really much in doubt, but nonetheless courts would say to the government, look, you really do need to deal with this as a meaningful fundamental constitutional right, and uh, the case would be remanded for additional evidence where the government would be forced to make a, a better case than that which they initially were able to uh, prevail on. Additionally, some criminal cases, some of the, the less uh, interesting or worthwhile cases, will generate language that says, yes, in your situation, Mr. Bank robber, Mr. Terrorist, Mr. Drug Dealer, your Second Amendment claim uh, is, is not that powerful, however, uh, an as-applied challenge with more sympathetic facts might yield a different outcome if only one were to be presented on behalf of somebody more deserving who had this type of theory. And so uh, those cases are also notable, and we are, as time goes on, going to get uh, perhaps more balance into the system with, with better cases, and you know, we're working on that. Uh, in any event, uh, let's, let's take a look at some of the, the positive cases that have been meaningful. Uh, uh, in the interest of time, I'll speak about uh, the two primary ones that I litigated, which I think have have, um, have uh, really made a difference and will continue to do so for some time to come. And the first case we turn to uh, is Ezell versus City of Chicago. The City of Chicago is an interesting place, and with all due respect to the D.C. City Council, I think Chicago has outdone you in its hostility to the Second Amendment. <laughs> They're far more creative and vicious and, uh, and take a very interesting approach to things. In the wake of the McDonald uh, decision striking down Chicago's ban on handguns, Chicago crafted a very uh, Byzantine uh, gun regulation uh, ordinance, one aspect of which required individuals to obtain training on a regular basis to maintain firearms ownership, but then the training was made illegal uh, because it's dangerous to shoot guns. Now, uh, when we approached this case, we didn't, it was not our objective to say that uh, training could never be required. I think everyone agrees that if someone uh, is going to own a firearm, they should probably know how to use it, and uh, as the police in Chicago have, have uh, admitted, training is a perishable skill. If you have a gun, you should probably make it your business. Whether you're required to or not is a different question, but it's, it's, it's a good idea to know how to shoot that gun and learn how to be effective in it so you're more danger to the bad guy than you are to yourself or, or innocent uh, uh, people. But nonetheless, people do, of course, have the right to, to buy guns, and uh, even if they're not if you, even if they were not required to train with a gun, they do have the right to use the gun, to actually go somewhere and practice shooting it, to engage in the shooting sports and otherwise develop and maintain their skills. And so however else one might regulate gun ranges, and of course gun ranges can be regulated just like any other uh, business use uh, of land might be, nonetheless you can't ban them entirely. And so we filed and prevailed eventually in the Seventh Circuit in a case called Ezell versus City of Chicago, where Chicago's total ban on gun ranges uh, was struck down. The city responded by enacting a whole host of very interesting regulations, which we're still litigating over, uh, and uh, we'll see how that case proceeds. Another case also uh, out of the state of Illinois, although not Chicago, of course, is Moore versus Madigan, which uh, was mentioned earlier. In here, we were dealing with the fact that Illinois was the only state in the nation that had a total blanket prohibition on the carrying of guns outside the home uh, uh, for defensive purposes. Uh, all 49 other states uh, have some sort of law dealing with this. 
uh, I guess with the exception of Vermont, which has no law dealing with this. And, um, and, and the laws range uh, in, in their severity, but, but in any event, uh, Illinois was unique in having a complete ban. And our argument there was very simple. Look, the Supreme Court held in Heller that you have the right to keep and bear arms. Bear at the time of the founding meant to carry. There was a, a great deal of, um, there's a great deal of uh, uh, material in Heller and McDonald saying that you have the right to actually carry the gun outside the home. And so you can't have a complete and total uh, uh, prohibition. The, uh, the Seventh Circuit agreed with us, struck down the law, and uh, we're going to see how uh, that case proceeds. It's not yet clear to me whether or not uh, Illinois will petition for cert. I suspect that it might. Uh, the governor is trying to um, uh, still resist uh, the legislature's reaction to more. Uh, last week, the legislature uh, enacted, uh, by overwhelming majorities in both legislative houses in Illinois, 75% majorities, they enacted a shall-issue uh, licensing scheme. The governor suddenly says, that, well, he needs a lot more time to think about this because I guess he, you know, he may have tuned it out the last uh, uh, year that this has been going on. So uh, we'll see what happens. Now, the Seventh Circuit, unfortunately, is not like the rest of America. In other courts, we have hostility to the Second Amendment that is off the chart. Um, this is perhaps a telling passage. This is from Richards versus County of Yolo, a case that I handled uh, in, um, uh, in California where uh, the, the judge had this to say about the Second Amendment. I'm quoting here. Compared to many of this country's constitutional protections, the scope of rights under the Second Amendment is ambiguous and no doubt subject to change and evolution over time. Well, uh, respectfully, that's erroneous. Heller and McDonald made clear that the Second Amendment is not a second-tier poor relation to the Bill of Rights. It actually does have some substantive meaning the courts are required to discover and then implement one way or the other. But I think the problem here is that many judges simply do not see guns as having any positive social utility. And perhaps that is the problem of the Second Amendment overall. Uh, essentially, we have people in America who have no use for guns, would not have a gun, don't know anyone who would admit to having a gun. And so for such individuals who are unfamiliar and don't much care for firearms, uh, any restriction looks reasonable. There's no law that you could create that they would not say, well, of course, because something might happen, and so this particular law is reasonable no matter how uh, uh, draconian and restrictive the burden might well be. And I think this view is also filtered into the courts. Judge uh, Harvey Wilkinson of the Fourth Circuit, I think, crystallized it in an off-quoted passage from U.S. versus Mashandara, and let me quote Judge Wilkinson. Uh, this is serious business. We do not wish to be even minutely responsible for some unspeakably tragic act of mayhem because in the peace of our judicial chamber, we miscalculated as to Second Amendment rights, close quote. Now, what does that say? Uh, the framers secured the right to keep and bear arms because they thought it would be a good idea. Obviously, they were aware that there were some costs inherent uh, in having arms in society, but they believed for, for various reasons that the benefits outweighed the harms, and therefore we have this right enshrined in our Constitution. Nobody ratified the Second Amendment because they thought it would be a bad idea, because they thought it would be harmful. And so if you have a close question, and uh, if it's one with which the court must really wrestle, perhaps uh, if you take seriously the idea that the Second Amendment secures a positive value, then one should err on the side of securing the existence of the right rather than um, rather than uh, uh, saying that uh, if we miscalculate, then uh, something bad uh, might happen. Uh, so we do need to see the Supreme Court probably address uh, that attitude and, and confirm that, yes, in fact, there, this is a, there's a positive social utility of firearms and to the Second Amendment. Uh, other courts, 
resist the right to arms in, in other ways. Um, uh, several courts have held, they've assumed that you have a right to carry a gun outside the home, for example, but nonetheless have, have upheld the idea that even though you have this right, and even though the Supreme Court has declared this right to be fundamental, you can only exercise this right if the police think it's a good idea for you to do so. And so we've seen courts uphold uh, laws, for example, such as Maryland's that say, oh, you can have a, a, a permit to carry a, a handgun so long as you prove a good and substantial reason to do so, whatever that means. In, in New Jersey, it's justifiable need. In New York, it's proper cause. In California, it's good cause. Now, of course, this would never work for any other constitutional right. Imagine if some state were to pass a law that said, well, you can have an abortion, the Supreme Court precedent on that, but only if it's medically necessary, if somebody else approves of it for you, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you're right. Well, actually, we did have such a case. Uh, we had such a case recently in the Ninth Circuit. Arizona passed a law that said, uh, at 20 weeks of gestational life, a woman cannot choose to have an abortion unless somebody declares that it's medically necessary. Uh, and of course, the Ninth Circuit made very quick work of that in Isaacson v. Horn. They said, look, the Supreme Court, whatever else it said about abortion, has said that you have the right to make that choice for a non-therapeutic abortion up until viability. Viability might be something of a floating target, but still 20 weeks is pre-viability. And if you have the right to have the procedure at that point in time, then certainly it cannot be denied to you uh, unless you prove that it's medically necessary. At that point, it's the physician exercising the choice rather than the patient. And so that law was done away with. Uh, again, uh, applying that same rationale to, to, to firearms, uh, we would see perhaps um, other outcomes. Of course, it's not just uh, these prior restraint type situations that are at issue. In uh, Moore v. Madigan, the Illinois carrying case, we had a very interesting dissent from a denial of rehearing on Bonk. Here's what the dissenters said about how much you could restrict uh, the right to carry a gun. They said, okay, well, all the majority decided here is that you have the right to carry a gun. Illinois can't ban the right uh, to carry a gun. But we also understand, of course, and Heller confirmed, that we can prohibit guns from being carried in so-called sensitive places. And the Supreme Court hasn't given us a lot of guidance as to how we discover where those sensitive places might be. But here's how the four dissenters on the uh, Seventh Circuit saw sensitive places. Areas around schools, courthouses, other government buildings, public universities, public libraries, hospitals, medical offices, public parks and forests, churches and other places of worship, banks, shopping centers, public transportation facilities and vehicles, and venues for sporting events, concerts, and other entertainment, among many possible examples. So areas around forests and everything else, among other possible examples, are all going to be sensitive. Uh, but of course, uh, in this case, at least the dissenters were not outdone by the city's lawyers here in Washington, D.C. They've been arguing in Palmer v. D.C. that all of Washington, D.C. is a sensitive place because very important people live here, and we wouldn't want anything bad to happen to them. Um, so again, this is not taking the right very seriously, and hopefully we will uh, uh, see the court respond to, um, to this kind of resistance as well. I should also mention, I know I'm out of time, uh, but, uh, but I'd be remiss in not mentioning that, of course, the other way that courts, hostile courts sometimes deal with the Second Amendment is notwithstanding Heller's language that, that, uh, that the Second Amendment is like other uh, parts of the Bill of Rights, not subject to a presumption of constitutionality when it's going to be infringed, uh, courts are applying rational basis uh, to uphold uh, restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms. Now, they don't call it rational basis because everyone knows that uh, Heller said not, not to do that. Well, we're not supposed to apply rational basis, so let's not call it that. We'll call it intermediate scrutiny. 
But nonetheless, the test that's being applied in many of these cases is not intermediate scrutiny. Intermediate scrutiny requires the government to still carry the burden of proving that there's a reasonable fit between its restriction and the right at issue. But we are seeing case after case after case where courts are saying, oh, the plaintiffs have not overcome their burden to disprove the presumption in favor of this legislative judgment. After all, the government has offered some hypothetical reason why guns would be bad under these circumstances, and therefore the law uh, should be upheld. Uh, and uh, any excuse appears is going to be accepted. Now, there's no way to reconcile that with uh, Heller and McDonald or with other cases that correctly read and follow the Supreme Court precedent. And I suspect it's only a matter of time, probably not too long, that the Supreme Court will take some of these cases and start clarifying this area. The one thing I think that we can all agree on is it's very unlikely the Supreme Court would have taken us down this road in Heller and McDonald if they were going to then do nothing else after those cases and simply uh, uh, disappear. I think that the Supreme Court uh, meant to actually start a real field of constitutional law, and it should be getting involved sooner, uh, probably, rather than later. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Emily Miller is fairly new to the Second Amendment and uh, gun rights scene, but I don't think it's too much to say that she's fast becoming a rock star uh, in the area. She's a senior editor uh, of the opinion pages at the Washington Times, and she already had a, a popular column uh, on national politics when she decided that she ought to have a gun to keep in her home for purposes of self-defense here in the district. So the story is she told her editor that she wanted to write about the process of acquiring a gun and the necessary registration here in the city, and thus began her popular multi-part series uh, in the Washington Times called Emily Gets a Gun. <laughs> and it recounts her journey through the red tape the city has put in place uh, for residents. Now, why is it popular? Why, and why did she receive several awards for this series of articles? Uh, good writing, uh, to be sure, but it was mostly just good reporting, something that is uh, unfortunately uh, absent in this uh, area. I was glad to hear that uh, Emily is going to be releasing a book on her experience trying to get a gun, and I hope you picked up a flyer outside uh, with more information about that book. It's coming from Regnery, and it will be uh, available in September. I should also mention that she has done a related series of articles about how several veterans here in the city have been caught up in the web of DC's uh, gun regulations and the awful treatment that they have received by the DC police and DC prosecutors. Would you please welcome Emily Miller. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, for including me in this group of esteemed lawyers. I, uh, I'm sort of the court jester, I think. Um, thank you for having me. You know, I, I, as Tim referenced, I am very new to this issue and to being a gun owner. I shot a gun for the very first time in October, November 2011, um, and I just got a gun a year ago, February. So it's very new to me. And as Tim said, I. Um, I'd been, um, I'd been a victim of a crime in DC. I was, um, make a long story short, I was, I was dog sitting for some friends, I had this really big house in Northwest, and I took the dog for a walk and quite stupidly left the front door unlocked, closed but unlocked. I was only gone for a few minutes, and it was New Year's Day, and by the time I got back, there was a man coming out of the house as I was coming in. And, um, you know, I, I, at first I wasn't, I wasn't even scared, I just said, well, 
what are you doing? Um, and he said, I'm here to clean the pool. And it was January 1st. So I said, well, we didn't call someone to clean the pool. And he said, oh, oh, it's the neighbors. And he kind of kind of scooted out and ran down the street. Well, I thought, well, I better get a picture of him so I can tell the police, just in case something's up. And so I grabbed my Blackberry, armed with a Blackberry. I chased him down the street. And that was really stupid. And the police had given me a lot of lectures on not watching Law & Order and trying to pretend that I am Law & Order since then. But um, I, I crossed, sort of got into this cul-de-sac and saw 12, 15 men standing there looking at me, suddenly surprised, in two pickup trucks. I found out later they had just been robbing all the houses in the neighborhood, and I'd come back and surprised them. And the police came over. Um, they, he had been in the house. He'd stolen my wallet. Um, he'd gotten far into the kitchen. When the police came and looked, the thing they were most concerned about was that they, the bad guys hadn't left some of the doors and windows open so they could come back that night and get good, good stuff since I surprised them. And so as I was sleeping that night in this house, um, and obviously we, I was walking a dog that was completely useless for self-defense. Um, he didn't even bark. I thought, you know, I was terrified. You know, I was simply terrified. And, you know, we've heard and, you know, call, we were hearing earlier about these women who've been raped and murdered in D.C. D.C. is one of the few places in the country where violent crime is increasing every year. Um, and I'll point out as a woman, um, rapes, sexual assaults, which include rapes, were up 50 percent in D.C. last year in 2012 something the police chief Lanier does not like to be discussed, but it is a dangerous city. And as I was falling asleep that night, or I couldn't fall asleep, what I did to protect myself is I took a dresser and barricaded against the door so in case the bad guys come, I could maybe defend myself. But it suddenly occurred to me, you know, what I would love to do is have a gun by my bedside. And in my entire life, it never once occurred to me before that thought. But at this time, I was so scared and I wanted to protect myself. So that's when the next day, I went on Twitter, which I'm a big fan of, at Emily Miller, and um, I, I get all my information that way, and I sort of said, I want to get a gun in D.C. What does it take? And this was 2010 when this happened, and um, I got just reams of responses. It's impossible. You can't get one. You, you can't get it. And, you know, as a citizen, a journalist, I've been aware that, you know, Heller had been decided that these guys had fought to get me my Second Amendment rights restored. So I knew it was legal, so I couldn't understand why everybody was saying you can't get it. I soon found out. So I went to get a gun, and as we said, I went to my editor and said, I'm going to get a gun anyway. How about I write about it in the Washington Times? He said, that's fine. I said, I think it'll take probably a couple weeks. Um, it ended up taking me four months to get a gun to get a legal gun. And I'll add, as you know, as um, we were speaking earlier about the right to bear arms, and which we hope to get the city to be recognized at some point as well, I spent four months getting a gun. It cost $435 in fees, and I can't take it out of the home. So that's what it costs just to keep arms in Washington. Um, what I did was, and, and I could take up four months telling you the story of what it took to get a gun in D.C. And what they what I found out and what the response was on Twitter was after these gentlemen fought the Supreme Court to get me my right to keep arms in D.C., the city council passed these absolutely outrageous registration laws, uh, registration rules on what you had to do to get one to make it virtually impossible. They didn't want us to have guns. And they still don't want us to have guns. And they will tell you they don't want you to have guns. Um, so I, you know, not knowing any of this really, I went, I started by just going to the police station. I'd never been there before. There's a firearm registration office. And I walked in and I said, I'm here to buy a gun. And 
the police officer looked at me and she goes, would you have a gun? And I said, no, no, I don't have a gun. I need to get a permit to get a gun. I didn't know the language then. So I didn't realize that permit generally means carry. And she goes, well, you can't, you can't carry a gun like this, like me, you can't do that. And I said, well, how do I, and I said, I thought it was like a driver's license. Like you go in and you get a license and then you can get a gun. She said, oh, no, no, you go get a gun and then you come back and we'll let you know if you pass it, then possibly we'll let you register it. I said, okay, so where do you buy guns? I mean, I, I've never been through this before. I had no idea. And she said, well, not in D.C. So, but she handed me, I mean, I, I counted later, 22 pages, pieces of paper. And she said, just follow this little guide. Come back. Um, so I took it home, and I was like, how in the world am I going to figure this out? So I, I, um, I soared through it, and I spent a day or two going through it. And I finally just said, I'm just going to write down all the steps so I can go through them and check them off. And I found out there were 17 steps in order to register a legal gun. And actually, after I went through it, I found out there were 24 steps. So it was 17 that I was facing. And I will just I'll briefly run through what it took to get a gun. You have to fill out an eligibility form, and then you have to get it notarized. And I personally never had anything notarized before, so I didn't even know where to do that. You have to find a DC certified instructor to take this five-hour safety class. Then you take the five-hour safety class and get the instructor to fill out the form. You have to provide proof that you have um, perfect vision, um, but I found out my driver's license sufficed, so that was good. Proof of residency, that was easy. Two passport photos. They don't. It's not like the DMV. They don't do it for you. Um, you have to study for a test, and that's a whole separate time frame. Then you take a 20... Point, 20 multiple choice tests, written test in the police station. I later found out you can only take that after you bought the gun and have a serial number. They will. I went to the station to take my test, had studied, had very ready to take it, and they wouldn't let me take it, had to leave. Um, you have to get fingerprinted. That the police will do for you. <laughs> and they make you pay for it. Um, you have to pay fees, $60 worth of fees to the city for that. Um, but you have to pay the, the DMV. So if you've ever been to the DMV in DC and you see those lines, some of those people, very few, but some of them are like me, they're to pay for your gun fees. So those lines just as long. You have to buy the gun. And as I found out from the police, you can't buy one in DC. And then, which I didn't find out then, I found out later, that the gun you buy has a, can't have a high capacity magazine which I found after I bought my SIG, Sour 229, um, that it comes with a magazine that is 13 rounds magazine. That's the standard. So you can't just buy it and have it shipped to our dealer. You have to find someone who will exchange that magazine for one that's not high capacity, meaning that they stick a little metal thing into the magazine so it can't take three more rounds. Um, that took weeks in and of itself. And then we have one gun dealer in DC, Charles Sykes, who I've gotten to know very, very well through this process and spent quite a bit of time in his office. He transfers the gun. He does not buy or sell guns. He only transfers. His fee is $125, and you can gasp. And I know we've all discussed that that's, a high, that's the highest fee in the country. Having spent quite a bit of time with Charles Sykes, I am a defender of his fees because so few people go through what I did to get guns. He only works a few hours a day. 
And I think at this point, it's about 1,200 guns are registered a year. Many of those are already pre-owned, so they don't need Sykes at all. Many of them are multi-guns for some people. He's barely, barely, I averaged it out, making about $30,000 a year off this. So he's not getting rich. He really does it because he believes in our ability to get the Second Amendment, to have a Second Amendment. Um, so anyway, Charles Sykes, transfer fee, $125, cash only. But there is an ATM machine near the DMV. I found that out in the process. Um, then you take your firearms, your documents, to Sykes. Once the gun has been delivered to him, and he will only accept it with a 10-round magazine, you take him your documents. He fills them out. He calls the FBI, does your NICS check while you're there. Then you take your forms back up to the police station. And then a police officer comes, escorts you down to Sykes' office, takes your gun away from you takes it for a ballistics test. And I, having never even touched my own gun at this point, I wanted to go, because I had no idea where they're taking it, wouldn't let me come to the ballistics test. So they're gonna go shoot my gun, they did shoot my gun. Um, and then they bring it back and then they escort you and your gun back to the police station and then they approve your gun. And I kept asking along the way, what if I do my 17 steps and they don't approve my gun. Then I'm at all this money, and the police officers were like, that's the system, that's the system, that's the process. And I have to say, I heard the word, the process, about 50 times out of this police officer's mouth. I mean, it was the most frustrating place. Anyway, then you go, and you fill out your paperwork, you give it to them, and they say, okay, now you have a five-day waiting period. So then after the five-day waiting period, then they go, okay, now you have five more day waiting period before Charles Sykes can give your gun. So there's these two waiting periods. And then you go get your gun from Charles Sykes. You take it to the police station. They look at it. They approve it. Um, they make sure it's in a lockbox. They won't let you take it without a lockbox, which is federal transport laws. And then I took my gun home on the metro because that was the way I got there. And they drove the police. And it was a little bit to drive the police crazy. <laughs> I did it that way. Um, but I'll tell you, in that whole process, the part that was the most onerous and was the part where I was thinking, I give up. Like, it, I don't care anymore. I don't want a gun. I actually went to my editor. I said, I give up. I'm not writing the story anymore. I don't want to do it. It was the five-hour safety class process. And the way the city made that so impossible is they put together this list. Two pages is the thing I got the first day. They hand it to you when you walk in. Um, all it is is names and phone numbers. No websites, no emails, no addresses, no affiliation, no idea who these people are. And then the city doesn't regulate it, so you're just... You don't know what they cost. You don't know anything. So I started calling. I kept getting all these wrong numbers or disconnected or people being like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then finally, I just thought, this, something's wrong here. So I spent one day just calling every name. There are 47 names on this list. It had not been updated since 2009 when this law had started. And out of the 47 people, I found four who were ready and willing and able to give this class. And the cheapest I could find was $200. The rest were $250. One guy, this was the kicker. This is the one that put me over the deep end. One guy was like, I do teach it only in Colorado. And I was like, why would you teach the DC registry safety class in Colorado? He goes, there's quite a demand. I was like, there are 400 people a year doing this. Who is in, I mean, I'm sure that there's, how about legalizing drugs? That guy's, I don't know what's, he's really doing on that list. Anyway, so there's so many things that are unconstitutional about this class. First of all, it's illegal to teach in D.C. because you can't shoot, and one of the requirements was an hour at the range. So all of this is in Maryland, D.C. 
Obviously, it's cost prohibitive for most of the city. $250 is a ridiculous cost. It's mandatory. And then as a woman, I went to my editor and I was like, all right, of these four guys, all of them teach in their house. I don't know where they live. I don't know who they are. One guy actually said, oh, yeah, lady, I just teach it in my basement. And I was like, I've seen Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I'm not going in some strange man's basement who's armed, who uh, he knows I'm not armed. And I mean, I was like, so I said to my editor, I was like, forget it. It's, I'm not doing this. I'm not putting myself at risk. Um, in the end, what I did is I found there was a woman who taught the class, Donna Worthy, in near Baltimore in Maryland. She had been trying to get on this list for three years. The police would not update the list. Um, and she was a former police officer, and she has a storefront. So that's where I took my class. It was a real place with the classroom. It did cost $250. Um, and so that was, that was the owners. And, and um, as many of you know, the city council, through this process, has moved, has changed some of it. They've eliminated this class. Um, they've eliminated the ballistics test. They've taken some of the things out. So I now count 11 steps. They're being very generous to us. Um, but, you know, I am, I, you know, I've become, I'm a gun owner now and such a strong believer in the Second Amendment and did not understand at all what it was like to have not have my Bill of Rights being recognized. So I will continue to write in the Washington Times about what's going on both in D.C. and around the country with these gun control laws that have swept the nation this year. Um, and it's because, you know, quite frankly, two things need to happen. One is we, all, everyone in this country has the right to keep arms. There should not be a registration process. That is, no registered gun in D.C. has ever been used in a crime. This is not how criminals are getting guns. It is only stopping the law-abiding from defending themselves. And we all need the right to bear arms. It's still shocking to me, and I, I can't wait till Alan gets a case to get to Supreme Court, that I don't have the right to bear arms in my in home. So thank you all so much, and I'll... The voice will go to questions. Okay, we have time to take a few questions. Uh, three requests. Please wait for our microphone to get to you so that everybody can hear your question. Please identify yourself and any affiliation you might have. And then please keep your questions brief. We only have a few minutes, and I want to get to a few people as possible. Right there, the gentleman in the blue shirt. Uh, hi, I'm Chris Stacy from Falls Church, and my question is uh, for uh, Mr. Levy. Uh, you indicated that you might conceptually endorse uh, selected uh, inst uh, instant background check requirements in uh, selected places, and I was wondering what kind of, you know, how you might define selected private sales, how is it constitutional to discriminate against particular selected sales, whatever that means, and, you know, how would it be defined in the law so that people could understand it? Byzantine is the word that usually comes up. And then there's going to be both, you know, judicial reinterpretation and regulatory agencies with all kinds of interpretations and creep on what the, uh, you know, what, what the scope of that is to. Uh, so where would you where would you see all that going? The sales that are now subject to background checks are any sales through uh, federally licensed dealers. Of course, all dealers have to be federally licensed. So we're talking about. Um, a huge chunk of total sales are already subject to background checks. In addition, you have to have a background check on a handgun sale if the buyer and seller uh, live in, a, uh, in different states. Uh, that background check would have to be done through a dealer uh, as well. So all we're talking about in terms of the Manchin-Toomey compromise is to expand background checks a little bit, and that little bit would be person-to-person -person sales over the Internet. 
person-to-person -person sales through published ads, like for example, Craigslist. This extension would not include, would still not include uh, inheritances, gifts, bequests. Uh, it would not include person-to-person -person sales just among friends. It would not include even sales that are talked about at a gun show and then the folks convene to a different place in order to conduct their transactions. So this is a very modest expansion in the Manchin-Toomey compromise of background checks. And when I said I would endorse selective uh, background checks, I didn't mean selective in the sense of discriminating between one individual and another. I meant selective in the sense of extending those checks only uh, to sales over the internet uh, between private parties and uh, sales uh, at gun shows that did not go through dealers and sales uh, based on advertisements that are published like Craigslist or newspapers. Stay in the back over here. Yes, it's on the way. Oh, good morning. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. Um, um, I suppose the questions for for anyone who who uh, would like to field it, but within the within the narrative of of assault weapons bans and and what sort of firearms we can own, the idea that uh, an AR-15 or other you know civilianized and NFA compliant versions of of uh, semi-automatic rifles are somehow weapons of war. I, I just feel is entirely mischaracterized. That I've been in war. I have fired my M16 more than once at people who are shooting a lot more back. And um, in conjunction with my M16, I also had tanks, uh, automatic grenade launchers, belt-fed machine guns, thermobaric rockets, and fire that we dropped out of the sky. Um, so it's uh, hardly a material contributor to uh, uh, weapons of war. And in the very scary battlefield of Santa Monica, California, every police officer uh, is issued an AR-15. Um, and the and as far as civilian application goes, you know the terminal ballistics of a of a 5.56 millimeter bullet go through less drywall and brick than a nine millimeter pistol round. So in terms of safety, I mean they're they work, they're they're great, they have all these things. But I just feel in the narrative it's entirely mischaracterized. And I was wondering where where that comes up and and who talks about that and and how you know this 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 uh, struggle of ideas matters. Um, and and who uh, who leads that effort? How does that come up? And how do we win that? Okay. Does anybody want to? Okay. Go first. Yeah, I'll tell you. Um, I wrote a, I wrote a piece in the Washington Times, the myth of the assault weapon. So I mean, it is deliberately. Um, I'm going to be more political here than the rest. Is the gun grabbers who came up with this language and they do it deliberately, calling it an assault weapon when it's just as you said, it's cosmetic. An AR-15 is more convenient, it's easier to hold. As a woman, I can fit it to my arm, I can hold the pistol. Um, it's a defensive um, weapon. It, it is a way to dig into the Second Amendment. That's why they're going after them. That's why they originally did it. And, um, and just to, I just disagree slightly with the host of the event. On background checks, that's sort of the modern, I mean, assault weapons was what they went after in the 90s because they look scary. And so the public will jump on them because like, oh yeah, those are weapons of war. And they think it's what you used overseas, but they're not, they're not automatic, they're semi, as you well know. And that's how they got that ban enacted, even though, as you someone said, there's 300 people killed a year by any rifle. And now the new sort of assault weapon of 2013 is this common sense universal background checks. 
It's the thing where it goes, oh, that makes so much sense. It's have background checks for everyone. But the criminals aren't going through background checks. Criminals are getting their guns. This is all the government studies of justice on the streets from friends and family. They're not going through the process. So we can universalize them. It's not going to change who's going to get them. So I agree with you completely on this assault weapon. It's a language. It's a loaded language deliberately for political purposes. Okay. You guys wanted to... Uh... Yeah. Just just a quick comment on this, um, that the background checks that I mentioned, extending the background checks are not likely to do much good. I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm under no illusions that background checks are going to have much effect whatsoever in stopping uh, gun violence. They've had very little effect uh, to date in stopping gun violence. But here's the important point. Uh, the Manchin-Toomey compromise contained a number of very important benefits for gun rights owners. So in return for extending background checks, even though I think that those extensions would be ineffective, in return for extending background checks to cover private sales over the internet and through posted ads, you get lots of good things in return. Let me just itemize a couple of them very quickly. Interstate handgun purchases from dealers. That's not allowed right now. Uh, layers of protection against the federal registry, including uh, criminal and civil damages and codification of DOJ regulations on data destruction. A two-thirds reduction from 72 hours down to 24 hours in terms of the maximum time for background checks. Exemptions for holders of carry permits. They wouldn't be subject to background checks. Exemptions for some rural residents who live a long way from dealers. Liberalized rules for interstate transport. Legal immunity for veterans who are wrongly accused of being mentally infirm. Uh, partial public funding for background checks, equal processing priority for gun stores and gun shows, and reduced penalties for drug-related offenses that are now subject up to 10 years if you happen to lie on your application uh, or on a background check. These are very important improvements for gun rights owners, and that's what I would trade to get those improvements, a very modest extension in background checks.